it is really a joy to be here, and I, and I do mean that sincerely. Uh, so many of you that I've met already, uh, I, I feel like, uh, well, you've just been so warm towards me, and whether it's talking about what you've read um, or, or even the hospitality that uh, the pastors here have shown me, just very grateful and, and so encouraged to see such a warm, vibrant church like yours. Uh, my family is, is not here this morning. Uh, Lord willing, they'll be here uh, to, uh, tomorrow for Sunday, but I hope you have the chance to meet, uh, to meet them. We have four kids, uh, and, and my wife, her name's Elizabeth, but four kids, so you'll, Lord willing, you'll see them running around here at some point. I can't tell you uh, what an encouragement it is to me to see so many of you uh, with that book, None Greater, reading it, digesting it, uh, pen in hand, uh, sticky notes, that just warms my heart as a writer. I love, love writing, uh, and especially uh, about God himself. And then to, uh, out of all things, I feel like I could die today and, and everything would be right to, to, to be accused of hijacking Stephen Charnock. Well, what else could you want? What more could you want as a theologian? If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. In this first session together, I will be focusing on God's incomprehensibility and his infinitude. And then, after a break, we'll come back and I'm going to turn to God's immutability and then we will close our time by looking at one of the more, the more uh, stretching, mind-stretching attributes, which is God's impassibility. And then if you come back uh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, uh, I will be preaching uh, on texts like Acts 17, and we will be discovering God's aseity, his self-sufficiency. But with that said, uh, have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 33, though you may want to also have a finger in the chapter before Exodus, chapter 32. Well, he must have been petrified, don't you think? Most likely, he was in the fetal position, I imagine. At least I would have been curled up behind that rock. His knees shaking Palms sweaty, his throat gone dry, as he prepared himself to see that which no one would dare to see. I wonder, did he, in that moment, did he contemplate whether he would live or die? Would he even survive to tell others about it? Maybe not. No one would believe him even if he did live to tell this tale. Well, you may know who I'm talking about. The man hiding behind the rock was Moses. And he was about to see the backside of God. How can this be? For as Moses knew all too well, God is incomprehensible. No one can know, let alone see, 
the very essence of God and live. If there was anyone who had God's ear, anyone who could sit within God's inner counsel, anyone who could petition God on behalf of the people, anyone who could dare to enter into the very presence of our triune God, surely it was Moses, God's chosen leader, the very one to mediate God's presence to God's people. Few prophets, when you think about the Old Testament, I mean, few prophets or priests or kings had God's attention like Moses did. You may remember after liberating Israel from Egypt, Moses delivers the people to Mount Sinai. And it's there that God will meet with Moses one-on-one to give him those stone tablets, the law by which Israel was to live by. You know the story. Tragically, Israel commits the most horrific of sins, idolatry. And the people create that golden calf and bow down and worship, saying, this is the God. This is the God who has delivered them from the Egyptians. And Moses is put in this situation where he has to intercede. In Exodus 32.30, we read, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord perhaps... Right? Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. When Moses is told to depart and take the people to the land that God had sworn to their father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God still promises to drive out their enemies from the land. But there's a catch. No longer, because of their idolatry, no longer will God go with them. Verse 3, Exodus 33, 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. Why? For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard these disastrous words, the text says they mourned, they wept, But Moses intercedes once again. Look at verse 11. Moses is alone with the Lord. And it says he spoke face to face as a man speaks to a friend. These face to face conversations take place in what was called the tent of meeting. As the pillar of cloud would hover over, descending on top of the tent, representing the very presence of God. What a sight. In one encounter, if you look at Exodus 33, 15-16, Moses expresses his reservation at entering into this promised land without the Lord. It says this, if your presence, Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have, I have found favor in your sight? 
I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Do you see? Can you, can you feel Moses' concern? God listens to Moses. And, and the Lord agrees that he will, thanks to Moses' intercession, he will go with his people. But he makes it very clear that it is because Moses has found favor in his sight. Look at verse 17. Moses is the one. Isn't this a remarkable statement? Moses is the one the Lord knows by name. The relationship Moses has with the Lord, it's personal, isn't it? It could not be more intimate. If anyone knows the Lord, it's Moses. And yet, even Moses cannot experience the very essence of God. Perhaps it's because Moses speaks face to face with the Lord so often that he then feels so bold to ask the unthinkable. Look at verse 18. Please show me your glory. God's glory? Seriously, Moses? How can you be so bold? How can you even think that seeing God's glory is humanly possible? Moses, haven't you forgotten who you're, who you're talking to? Now, let me defend Moses for a minute. Moses is Israel's covenant mediator. In light of the catastrophe of chapter 32, Israel's idolatry, Moses is desperate, isn't he? He's desperate to see God's presence continue with God's people into the land. And he knows if this doesn't happen, if God does not go with us, we will be nothing. We will be destroyed. And the, and the other nations, they will not be able to identify us as a distinct people of God. Perhaps in this moment, Moses desires some sort of confirmation that God will be true to his words, that he will go with them. You may remember God had confirmed his covenant in the past by manifesting his presence with Moses. We see this in Exodus 24, where he says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. How? By means of a, of a cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses out of the midst of this mysterious cloud. You see, the Lord's glory, it had also appeared, not just in the form of a cloud, but in the form of what? A devouring fire on top of that mountain. All of Israel could see it, at least in some shape or form, from a distance as that mountain trembled. One might assume Moses is simply asking for a repeat experience 
But still, still, right? Moses seems to be asking for something that goes way beyond anything he's ever experienced before. How does God respond to Moses? The the response is remarkable, isn't it? Look at Exodus 33, verse 20. On the one hand, God makes it very clear to Moses, it is impossible, impossible for Moses to see the very glory of God. You cannot see my face, Moses. For man shall not see me and live. I think we can assume from this statement, very sobering statement, that no one, and we need to hear this, don't we? No one can see the very essence of God. He is so glorious, and His glory is so infinite that we would be consumed. Think of the sun, for example. If we look at the sun straight on, our eyes will burn. Our sight could even be lost. Should we dare to do the unthinkable, to, to approach the sun, we will disintegrate before we can ever step foot on its surface. The the proper way to experience the sun is how? By means of its effects. Its rays warm us. Its beams give us light when there is darkness. But look at the sun? No. We know better, don't we? On the other hand, God has promised to go with His people rather than merely sending His angel. So while He is far greater than even the sun, He's made this remarkable promise of His presence to be manifested to Moses, Israel's mediator, even if not directly. Exodus 33, verse 19, he says this. He announces his plan. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses cannot see the face of the Lord and live. So, the Lord will tuck Moses behind a rock as he passes by. Behold, this is 21 through 23, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is God's grace, by the way. Now, let's think theologically, shall we? We know from elsewhere in Scripture 
Deuteronomy 4, John 4, many other passages, that God does not have a body. He is not like us. He is spirit. We theologians have a word for this. We like to call this language in Scripture anthropomorphic. It means that the biblical authors will oftentimes use human features like hands or back or face to describe the way that the immortal one, his passing presence and glory will be experienced by our mortal eyes. Much like Moses did. And the language, notice the language is there to protect us. It guards Moses from God's glory and God's glory from Moses. That Moses is even allowed to be hidden in a nearby rock is a privilege. And yet Moses is given even more, isn't he? He may not be allowed to see the Lord's face, so to speak, but he may see the Lord's back. Moses is permitted to be hidden in this rock, but it's God, actually, who is hidden from Moses. Only the Lord's backside will be seen. He will place his hand over Moses' face, keeping him from seeing his face, only to remove his hand to allow Moses, perhaps for a second, to see his backside pass by. I love what one author says, Surely Moses must have quickly realized that in knowing God more fully, God had become an even greater mystery, an even greater problem than he was before. Have you had that experience? The more you come to know God, the more you realize how little you know. (laughs) If Moses' encounter teaches us anything, it's this. God's essence is beyond the reach of finite mortals like you and like me. Not even Moses could see God's glory and live. Dead men tell no tales, do they? But especially those who have seen the very essence of God, who have dared to approach the radiance of the sun. It is incomprehensible in all of its glory, perfection, and brilliance. Moses learns that day that God is so great, He defies our categories. He defies our comprehensibility even. And that reality as it sets in for Moses, it's going to lead him to his knees countless times, especially when he sins. Fearful of the one who is a consuming fire, dwelling, as the New Testament says, in light inaccessible. But it also is meant to leave us in awe of our God. It's to move us to worship Him for His, for His glory. Is this not what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy? 1 Timothy 6, 15-16 He who is the blessed and only sovereign 
the King of Kings. Isn't this what we just sung about? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Listen, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and an eternal dominion, Paul says. Amen. Unfortunately, in the last 300 years or so, a very different picture of God has emerged. One that continues to be prevalent today, even in Christian circles. And, I would add, I think it is the default assumption for too many Christians today. Failing to properly distinguish between the creature and the the creator himself. We have created a God in our own image. Notice the reversal. The creature is not made in the image of the creator, but God, the creator, in the image of the creature. Rather than looking to the supernatural God of the Bible who defies our finite realm, we prefer what many have called monopolytheism. What's that? Well, it sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? If you know what the word monotheism means, it refers to belief in one God. Polytheism refers to the belief in many gods. Put them together sounds odd, doesn't it? But that's the point. It's that popular, though, I think very contrary belief, as as one person has put it, that God is not different from the polytheistic picture of the gods as merely very powerful, discrete entities who possess a variety of distinct attributes that lesser entities also possess, if but in smaller measure. This view of God, well, it doesn't actually differ, does it, from a polytheistic view of many gods. The nations surrounding Israel were like this. The gods they worshipped were actually a, a lot like them, just bigger and better. And many instead of one. Sometimes as Christians, we have adopted that same view, but we apply it to one god instead of many gods. So monopolytheism. And say, yes, there's only one God, but then when we start describing this God, it doesn't look all that different from the gods of polytheistic religions. In Christian circles today, God is sometimes introduced into conversations in a very experiential way. Love is a common human experience, so God must be a God of love like we experience love. Mercy is a commendable virtue, so God must be a God of mercy like I am merciful, and so on. Think about God was always from the bottom up, from my experience to who God is. This approach can be actually very dangerous, can't it? 
it can flirt with the possibility of creating a God in my own image. Always defining God's attributes according to our own limitations. It can also be dangerous because it domesticates God. It tames God. It turns God into merely a bigger, better version of ourselves. But when we look at the greatest minds in the history of the church, some of my favorite thinkers, an Augustine, an Anselm, a Thomas Aquinas, a John Calvin, a Stephen Charnock, so many others, they refused to domesticate God. What was so different about their God was that they first thought of God as one who is not like us. They started from the top, from God Himself, and then worked their way down to humanity, making sure they defined who we are in light of who God is rather than the reverse. They moved from the Creator to the creature, but never compromising the Creator's transcendence. Think with me. Well, let's, let's, let's ask uh, someone like Augustine to help us here. Listen to what he says. This is, um, I'm summarizing him here. If, you, if you've never read uh, Augustine's Confessions, one of, one of the classic books of Christian literature, you're, you're in for a treat. Here, Augustine describes his own conversion, his own struggles with sin and temptation. But as he does so, he also offers up prayers, prayers that tell us what he believes about God and who this God is. What I love about Augustine's confessions, and this is just at the very beginning in one prayer in particular, what I love so much is the way he's so careful. He's like that, uh, that, that man or woman, that acrobat, walking that tightrope in the circus, right? Balancing, making sure not to fall to the right or the left. He says, God is imminent, intimately present, but he remains transcendent and incomprehensible, deeply hidden. Yes, God affects change in the world, changing all things, but he never changes in himself. He is immutable. Yes, God creates and renews, but he himself is timelessly eternal, never new, never old. Yes, God nurtures others, but he is never one in need of nurture. Yes, he brings the world into maturity, but he never matures nor is he ever in need of reaching his, his potential somehow, as if he needs to be activated. He is maximally alive, pure act, always active, never changing. Yes, he loves, but impassibly. He loves without our fickle burning. Yes, he's jealous, but his jealousy is unlike our human jealousy. He is never desperate or impotent. He's free of anxiety. 
Yes, he pours out judgment on the wicked, but never as a capricious God. He remains tranquil. His judgment is always metered by his own righteousness. And yes, he redeems paying our debt, but only because he owes a debt to no one. Being a God of absolute aseity, owing nothing to anyone, depending on no one. I remember the first time I read that. I, I, I put down the book. I was, I was camping on a lake. I had gotten up early. Thought, I'll give this Augustine fellow a try. Not sure about all this theology stuff, but I've heard a lot about him. It's a classic, right? I put the book down and I just felt perplexed. Why had I not learned of this God before? I've been a Christian for many years. I've read my Bible for many years. But this God, so big, much bigger than I had ever been taught. Sure, I I knew the basics. God is our creator. He is Lord. He is love. But never had I thought about God's perfections like Augustine had. And if I'm honest with you, some of them I had never thought about at all. Part of me felt frustrated. How could I be a Christian for so long? I've studied the Bible for so many years and been to church regularly and yet never heard about so many of these attributes. Attributes like God's simplicity, His aseity, his, his impassibility, His immutability, and so many others. But I was also overwhelmed with joy. Now, I would keep reading Augustine. I wanted to know more, and with His help, I then came back to the Scriptures, reread them with fresh eyes. Have you ever had that experience? And suddenly, you start to see them pop up everywhere. How could you, you know, I just read chapter after chapter and just blind to it. And then you revisit it and it's right there. I was so blind. How could I have missed this? I had known God for many years by his grace. But in that moment, I was caught off guard. I was surprised by God. I kept returning to this prayer, marked it, folded the pages, got out my pen, circled it. But there was one phrase I I, I couldn't escape. It just puzzled me. It's that phrase where Augustine says, God is perfection of both beauty and strength. And that word perfection, it haunted me. What did it mean? Why would Augustine use it to refer to God's many attributes? I don't think Augustine was just saying God's perfect just in the way that we use the word. He's saying something more. As I continued to study, the answer slowly came. 
and started to not just read Augustine, but other greats. I like to call them the A-team. Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas. There's other greats, by the way, but the A-team is spectacular. I started to read others. I start, the answer started to come. God is the most perfect, supreme being there is. Now, on the one hand, no one who claims to be a Christian is going to deny that. It's a statement that's basic to the biblical witness itself. But on the other hand, it raises a very penetrating question. What must be true of God if he is this most perfect being? Anselm, famous for this one sentence. I suppose if everything else he wrote perished and this one sentence remained, I would be happy. (laughs) He says, God is someone than which none greater can be conceived. God is someone than which none greater can be conceived. That statement does not merely mean, listen, this is, this is so important to get this right. It doesn't merely mean God is a being among other great beings or the greatest possible of all beings. No, he means something much more than that. He's not just a more perfect version of his competitors, having a leg up on them for whatever reason. Tends to be how we think of sports, right? Football, basketball, when we're rooting for our own team. That's not what Anselm means when he's talking about God. He means something different. He means God is a different kind, a different type of being altogether. He's in a class of his own. I love what he says next. God is the fullness of being itself, the absolute plentitude of reality upon which all else depends. So let's return to that question. What does it mean if God is perfect? Well, If he is this perfect being, well, he must have perfect making attributes, properties. Now, I've already mentioned one of them. You may be able to guess it from Exodus 32 and 33. His transcendence. It renders his essence incomprehensible. And it makes it absolutely essential if we are going to know him or be saved by him, or be in a relationship with him, it makes it absolutely essential that he accommodate himself to us, like he did to Moses. But there's others. There's other great making perfections. Perfections that guard God from our finite limitations. Perfections such as his infinitude. His aseity, his simplicity, immutability, impassibility, eternity, immensity, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. I could go on. Each great making perfection is essential to who he is. You subtract one and we no longer have a perfect God. Now, I would love, we could spend weeks talking about every single one of these. We can't. 
I want to just, as we enter a time in this session, introduce one of them. And that is God's infinitude. This one has to be understood maybe first to make sense of all the rest. The infinite nature of God. For God to be someone than whom none greater can be conceived, He must be infinite. I'm a native Californian, and one of my best memories is our family taking road trips. Uh, one road trip was to see those giant redwoods. Any of you seen one of these redwoods? Okay. Sometimes they're known as coast redwoods, tallest type of tree in the world, I think. And for those of you who have seen them, you know what I'm about to say, don't you? They're so wide, not just so tall, but so wide, you could drive a car, maybe even a bus through one of them. So tall, you can look up and up and up, and you still can't see the top of them. I think the, this, maybe there's a taller one now, I think the tallest coast redwood stands around 378 feet tall. When you stand next to one of those giants, you feel like an ant. It's humbling to be there. In fact, it can be a worship experience as you reflect on how big the Creator must be to make a tree like that. But however true it may be to say that God is bigger than even the tallest redwood you could find, it would be a mistake, and this is the point we have to get in our heads, it would be a mistake to think that God is merely bigger than that redwood. Even if we discovered some magical redwood whose top could never be found, endless, into the stars, still, that would be incomparable to God. Why? Despite the redwood's magnificent height, comparing God to the redwood is like, it's just apples and oranges. Something or someone can be unlimited in size. But that is not the same thing as saying they are unlimited in their essence. Let's not make the mistake of thinking the difference between us and our Creator is simply a difference in size. To do so is to assume God can be measured as if we're merely a bigger, as if He's merely a bigger, better, better version of ourselves. I like to call this the superhero syndrome. This is how so many of us think about God. He's just our superhero, a superman. Like us, just with superpowers. No, he's not. He is not a God who simply possesses our powers but an endless measure. He is infinite. He transcends our characteristics altogether. He is a different type of being. He is beyond being, some have said. We're, here we're just like, what words can we possibly use? We're grasping for words, aren't we? To try to describe someone who's not like us. He is being itself. 
The creation may be great in size, but God is unlimited in His very being. His greatness is one of essence. If this is true, and I think Scripture says in all kinds of ways it is, then only God is infinite. The creation, by contrast, may be large, but even if it were unlimited in size, it would still not compare to God. One reason for this is obvious. Everything we see has form. It's material. In some way, God has no form. He defies our material existence altogether. If God is this infinite, incomprehensible being, do you see how all the other perfections just fall into place? You and I, we're made up of parts. God has no parts. He is simple. Not simplistic, but simple in that sense. He's not, there's no composition to Him. He's just who He is, period. You and I, we are very mutable, aren't we? We change. And so we're finite. God is infinite. He does not change. He is immutable. You and I, we fluctuate emotionally. I know I do. If not every day, every hour. Fickle, unpredictable, controlled by our emotions. Not God. He is impassable. I could go on. But the point is, if God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived, He must be infinite. And if He's infinite, then He must be these perfections in infinite measure. Let me ask you this closing question. How does this truth, this God's infinite incomprehensibility, how does it change the way we understand salvation and the Christian life? One thing that I personally struggle with and have to work at so hard is evangelism. Maybe I'm the only one. Sometimes sharing Christ with a non-Christian, uh, even if there's genuine interest, it can be, uh, it can be intimidating, can't it? Um, maybe we fear the reaction being hostile or just indifferent. I mean, have you ever tried for example, to share the gospel only to receive maybe a question at the end like, hell, seriously? You're telling me that my sin deserves eternal punishment? In that moment, our tongue just gets real thick and heavy and we're trying to figure out how do we respond. It's hard, isn't it? Not least because the unbeliever doesn't grasp what? The sinfulness of sin. And it's hard to communicate that to someone who doesn't see the sinfulness of sin. They have no category for 
who they have sinned against. Isn't that the real issue? And who is that? An infinite God. They've spit in the face of a God whose holiness is inestimable. Whose glory we cannot begin to fathom. Whose perfection is of infinite measure. And blinded by sin, what do we do? We struggle to to then understand the magnitude of our own offense. Because we look... This is what we do. And I catch myself doing this all the time. We look at our sin... And then we look at each other's sin and we compare. Well, I'm not as bad as so and so. (laughs) And then what do we think? We think, well, my sin is not as significant as I first thought. We make light of our sin. We judge it over against others. It's not what the Bible does. You remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah stands in that heavenly courtroom and us with him as he represents God's people, beholding the infinite holiness of God, holy, holy, holy is this God. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me! God does not hold up our sin against the sins of others, but against His blinding light of infinite perfection. You see, it's when we understand that we have sinned against the One who is infinite in His perfection, that's not only scary, but it can lead us, like it did for Isaiah, it can lead us to total despair. It painfully, painfully reveals our situation. And it also reveals that we have no one to make atonement for our sin. Such a person would have to be infinite himself to atone for a sin against an infinite God. To pay for sins that deserve a penalty that has no end. Because in our finite, fallen world, clearly there is no one to be found. It's at that moment, that moment of utter despair, that moment you have to get to in evangelism, that's when the gospel shines through in all of its brilliance. We're like those shepherds sitting in the field in darkness and suddenly the glory of the Lord shone around them and they heard that news, too good to be true, those words, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then what happened next? The entire heavens burst open and angels begin to sing and praise. Praise God. Glory to God in the highest, they say. And listen to what they say next. On earth, peace. 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace? How can there be peace? Have we not sinned against this infinite God? We have. And yet, the infinite one himself has stepped out of the heavens to pay our sin. Isn't this what Paul says to the Philippians? The eternal Son of God took the form of a servant. Isn't this what he says to the Colossians? The image of the invisible God by whom all things were created and in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Does that language sound familiar? What has he done? He has reconciled all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. People don't begin to think that the doctrine of God does not make a difference in your life, your entire identity, your future, your status in eternity depends on it. Sin against an infinite God cannot be atoned for by a Savior who has somehow emptied Himself of all His perfections, all His divine attributes. What? Then how can we be saved? No, it is His divine attributes that qualify Him to make atonement in the first place. Sin against an infinite God can be met only by a Savior who is Himself deity. And all the perfections identical with that deity and in infinite measure. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, it is difficult, it is difficult for us, to say the least, to understand what it means for you to be infinite. But we do know this, you are incomprehensible. And yet, at the same time, like Moses behind that rock, we are helpless apart from you revealing yourself, accommodating yourself, and doing the unthinkable, sending your Son to make atonement for us. Lord, we need His blood because we have sinned against You infinite in holiness. Lord, may we be those who cling to Christ and His infinite glory so that we may enjoy You for all eternity. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.